Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Katie Field. She's a professor in plant soil processes at University of Sheffield over in the UK. So we're going to talk about our research. So Katie, welcome and thanks for coming. Thanks, Richard. It's lovely to be here. If you would tell me a bit about your background and what got you interested in uh, plant and fungi interactions. Oh, gosh. Yeah, it goes a long way back, actually. So um, I guess it all started my undergraduate degree, which I, I was doing and I had some really awesome lectures about actually about bryophytes. So that's this non-vascular plant. So mosses, liverworts, hornworts. And I just became really fascinated by these weird little plants. I then moved on to do my PhD and that was actually in something completely unrelated. That was in sedges and it was using mass spectrometry to try and understand kind of what's going on inside the sedges in response to a changing environment. And I kind of, I did that and it, it was it was good and I really enjoyed it, but it didn't really kind of quench my appetite for weird plants. And then a postdoc came along, project came along, which I applied for, which was um, looking at fungal associations with these bryophyte plants, which was kind of, it was too good to be true. And I did that and then the rest is history, really. I just fell in love with um, the whole idea of there being these partnerships between plants and fungi where everyone benefits and kind of the huge significance of this relationship for the world we see around us today. Uh, one funny question is you mentioned liverworts and hornworts and mm. I guess, you know, I've heard of liverworts. Um, is there such a plant that's called a, a hogwart? I'm thinking of Harry Potter. <laughs> or is that just a, a funny hogwart would be amazing. There's, um, there is, there's hogweed, but that's quite different. <laughs> um, so hornworts are closely related to liverworts. Um, they look quite similar, but they kind of produce these big horns that grow out of them. Um, and it's there. They, they kind of produce the spores from these horns, which is where they get their name from. Um, but no, there's no hogwarts, which is a real shame. I don't know where, where J.K. Rowling got that one from. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I just figured it just came into my mind. Um, <laughs> so, so I don't even know if most people know that that I guess all plants that you understand have an association with fungi. Well, what's what's a typical plant-fungi association and how and yeah. when does it arise? Sure. So actually more than 80% of the plants, more like 90% of the plants that you see around you today associate with fungal partners that they find in the soil. So for the most part, these fungi kind of get into the plant roots and they form these incredible structures within the plant cells themselves. <laughs> My dogs have just come into the room, so you can probably hear them in the background. Oh, um, it's okay, it's pretty quiet. I'm sorry. So anyway, so, so, so yeah, more than 90% of plants associate with fungal partners, and they form these incredible structures within the plant root cells. Some of these can look like little trees, and it's across these tree-like structures inside plant roots that they actually... Um, 
they, 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 they help the plant out by transferring nutrients that they've scavenged from the soil around them. And then the plant can assimilate those nutrients and um, use them for its own purposes. So growth, reproduction, photosynthesis. Yeah, so it's really common. Nearly all plants do it. There's only a few groups of plants that don't do it. And we don't really know why they don't do it. There's lots of different hypotheses for that, but um, there's no no real explanation that's that's completely um, bombproof. What does the uh, the association look like? Like, um, have, has anyone time lapsed it? Oh yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> when a plant's first in the soil, or you know, again, what does it look like? What are the yeah. steps? So it, to begin with, so, so so the fungi that form these associations, they're kind of present in nearly, nearly all soils everywhere all the time. And they're present mostly as spores. And these fungal spores, they can survive for more than 10 years, probably, until a suitable plant root comes along. And what the plant root does is it produces chemical signals that it kind of exudes into the soil around it. And this stimulates the fungal spore to germinate. And for the, the, the little hyphal outgrowth, which we call a hypha, so that hypha starts to grow towards where the chemical signal is coming from. And then it emits its own chemical signals, telling the plant root that it's not a pathogen, it's not a disease, it's a good fungus. And the plant root kind of ramps down its defences and lets the, the fungus in. The fungus then kind of causes the plant cell membrane to invaginate within the plant cell wall, um, sorry, within the plant cells. And it grows into that space and it forms these really incredibly beautiful structures that we call arboscules. And they look like little trees inside the plant root cells. And they're really highly branched, just like you can, a tree, if you can imagine it. And that gives it this huge surface area within the plant cell itself. So you have like this incredibly intimate partnership between these fungi and the plants that are hosting them. So um, what? So the are they called mycorrhizae or are they just called fungi or what? Yeah. So what are the call, associating creatures called? Sure. So yeah. So the um, the association between the plant root and the fungus when they come together, we call that partnership a mycorrhiza. Um, and the word mycorrhiza, it literally means fungal root, and it comes from the Greek. And so you can imagine you've got the fungus that lives in the soil, the plant root. When they come together, they form a fungal root or a mycorrhiza. Mm, okay. And I've heard of uh, plants having, I guess, root nodules, where there are nodules on their roots that uh, bacteria may live in. But how do the fungi that work with a plant interact with the bacteria that may cluster around their root nodules? That's a very good question, and it's it's one actually that is subject to a lot of research at the moment. We're only really just starting to uncover exactly how complicated the different interactions within sort of the soil that surrounds plant roots really is. Recent work has shown actually that um, bacteria that live in the soil also form associations with these fungi that are growing out from plant roots, and they can help the fungus access nutrients in the, from like organic complex compounds in the soil so from sort of dead plant matter decaying matter in the soil they can mineralize it and turn it into a form that um the plant then sorry the fungus assimilates and transfers to the plant partner we actually call these types of bacteria we call them helper mycorrhiza helper bacteria um because it seems like a really good name for them because that's exactly what they do they help the mycorrhizal fungi get stuff and help the plant hmm. do um have you, has anyone observed that um, fungi have their own microbiome that consists of mm. bacteria and viruses? Do they seem to as well? 
Yeah, you know, it blows my mind when you start really digging into kind of fungal microbiomes and then microbiomes within microbiomes. I've seen some research and I can't remember the specific details especially, but I remember seeing a poster at a conference once and it was showing these mycorrhizal fungi have these helper bacteria associated with them and associated with the bacteria, their own sort of microbiome of viruses and things but lots of these endophytic fungi that's fungi that live inside plants they have bacteria within them as well so not only are they associating with bacteria on the outside but there's bacteria that live inside the fungus and we really don't really know at all what they do we know they're there but it's really hard to do experiments as you can imagine trying to figure out what those bacteria are doing within the fungus within the plant before we continue I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Has anyone been able to observe the condition of a given you know, fungi or mycorrhiza before it enters into or associates with a plant or ones that are kind of inbound appearing versus ones that are outbound appearing? You know, how different, how much has the fungus changed in its association? And how has it changed? I don't, I don't really understand the question. Sorry. Oh, it's all right. You know, like from the perspective of a, a plant and its roots, so it starts growing in the soil. I would think that, you know, again, fungi are inbound. They make their way towards the plant. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's hyphae and stuff, you know, stretching their way towards the plant. Oh, right. Then there's yeah. ones that are at the plant. And then there's ones that may extend from the plant outwards sure. back into the soil. So it, if you look at the inbound versus outbound, like high fate, do they look? Yeah. Very different? Okay. Yeah. No. I, I think once once the fungus has reached the plant root in that very first sort of initial instance, so when the plant's germinating in the soil and it's got its first mycorrhizal fungi within the roots, then it will start to grow out of the roots and form like these complex networks below the soil surface. One of the really weird and cool things about these types of fungi is that actually they can fuse together, so you can get these big interconnected webs beneath the soil where you've got different individuals and I say individuals with inverted commas because it's it's quite difficult to define what an individual fungus is but they fuse together by a process called anastomiasis which is quite literally fungal hyphae just fusing together to form one continuous tube if you like and then they can exchange materials and substances through the tubes and you know in this way there, there is a hypothesis about what we call mycorrhizal networks and about how they, they, they connect neighbouring plants and what role these networks might play in sort of ecosystem structure and function. Okay, so I mean, they're, they're moving, growing, changing, doing all kinds of stuff. But um, is it possible, again, to sample, again, inbound versus outbound parts of a given fungi, you know, as it enters into and exits the plant and, and yeah. see how it changes it? Or is it just kind of, um, it's a whole changeover <laughs> in the plant itself or the fungi itself? Yeah, I'm not really sure. I think it would be incredibly difficult. I don't think you could ever do it in a soil-based experimental system because, I mean, 
the fungal hyphae, so that's the threads that make up the fungus itself, these turn over every few days. They don't live particularly long in terms of those particular structures and they regenerate. So I think it would be really, really difficult to try and measure inbound hyphae growing into a plant root versus ones that are growing out in a soil-based system. So I think you'd have to be looking at a more artificial setup. So you'd need kind of like to grow them, I guess, in some sort of culture-based system. The disadvantage in doing that then is that you don't really know whether it's doing what it would be doing in the natural environment. Does that make sense? Because you've taken it into such an Mm. artificial sort of reductionist approach. It's then it's quite difficult then to kind of understand whether that is what it would be doing normally or is it just doing something weird because it's in this weird situation? Well, normally, um, I don't know, has anyone been able to ascertain whether like along the length of hyphae that, you know, chemicals are entering and leaving? I mean, mm-hmm. I guess the structure of fungi itself, you know, maybe we can get into that a bit. What are the entry and exit points for nutrients and minerals? Like do, do fungi have like a skin that things yeah. pass through or, you know, yeah, how does it work so. for them? Yeah, okay, I guess so. So so the fungal hyphae that are growing through the soil, they have a membrane, just like any growing cell. And embedded in that membrane, there are things called transporter proteins. And these typically are almost like channels where specific ions or nutrients can kind of pass through the membrane and enter into the fungal hyphae itself. Now, obviously, in the soil it's not just swimming in stuff that it wants to eat because it's all bound up in rocks or in organic matter so the fungus actually has to secrete stuff out in order to digest it and then absorb it through these transporters with it they're embedded in the surface of the the hypha so it's kind of as it's growing it's secreting organic acids and different enzymes that are able to digest the stuff that's in the soil and liberate those small ionized particles and then it can absorb those into the hypha itself and it then transports those nutrients kind of along the whole length of the fungus right the way back into where it's originated which is more than likely to be the plant root um if you know if someone were to rip a big uh, fungi out of the earth and look at it is it is it totally decentralized like is there any any part of it that you consider the root or the yeah, brain no. or yeah fungi are really weird and i always think and this is one of the things i really enjoy about like studying fungi is that they're unlike any other living organism on earth really so they don't really have a single central part to it quite often we imagine that the mushroom could be the sort of that's what people see and they think that's a fungus whereas in reality that's just the fruiting body it's it's like an apple or an apple tree So the actual fungus itself is like this huge network of thread-like filaments running through the soil. Sometimes you can see them in some species, they're quite coarse, and so you can see them without a microscope. But other fungi, you can't, they're they're, they're invisible, they're so fine. And then you've got the added complication, as I was saying earlier, you've got the added complication that they can fuse together of the same species. So you then have kind of this weird amorphous, constantly changing, vast being it's very difficult to define what an individual fungus really is unless it's a single cell fungus because you do get those as well right so there's um yeasts for example they're they're fungi and they're they're single cells so it's very easy to define a single individual there but we're talking more about the filamentous fungi the ones that you think about that produce mushrooms so what spores will come off of uh, a fruiting body and land on the soil and they'll start new colonies of, of fungi is that how they spread essentially yeah and i think you know 
one of the things that really blows my mind about this as well is really is just the distances and the numbers of spores that are produced they travel vast distances there's some research been done um so bala chowdhury she's a, a researcher in um oh i can't remember she's that was really bad um but anyway there's some research that's been done that shows that actually a lot of fungal spores travel kind of in the air but particularly these mycorrhizal fungal spores they travel vast distances in the air and they cover every sort of every surface they're present everywhere are there any plants where the fungi associates with the roots but on the plant itself, you know, on the above ground portion that fruiting bodies may appear periodically or is evidence of active hyphae or other parts of the fungus mm-hmm. above ground? Yeah, so I mean, my research focuses on kind of what we call mutualistic fungi. So they're the ones that offer benefit to the plant and the plant offers benefit to the fungus. But there are a whole suite of fungi that also live on plants um, above ground also below ground, and they, they cause the plant to have disease. And quite often the only evidence that a plant actually has these diseases are when they decide to fruit or sporulate. And you see kind of fruiting structures on the plant itself then. So you'll see like tufty, fuzzy bits, or you'll see um, dark spots or rot or something like that. And, and, and that's kind of evidence that the plant is hosting more than just a mutualistic type of fungus. Hmm, okay. Well, tell me a bit about your particular research. What do you, are you looking at diseases? Are you looking at behavior? My research focuses on the symbioses between plants and these mycorrhizal fungi. And in particular, I'm interested in what the fungi are doing, sort of how much does it cost the plant to host these fungi? And how does that change with changing environments? So as I've been talking about these mutualistic fungi, they offer the plant nutrients from the soil. And in return, the plant gives the fungus um, carbon in the form of sugars or fatty acids that are the eventual end products of sort of photosynthesis and metabolism of the products of that. And so in this way, you have like a mutual benefit between them. And what's really interesting is that the degree to which the fungus is beneficial to the plant in terms of the nutrients as phosphorus, nitrogen, that changes according to all sorts of different factors. So it can change according to carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere or temperature, water availability, but also sort of additional interactions. So interactions with other organisms. So things like aphids or insect, other insect herbivores above ground can change how the plant interacts with fungi below ground. And so I kind of look at all of these different factors to kind of investigate the role of these fungi and how important they are in natural ecosystems but also in agricultural systems so trying to investigate whether there's any potential for these fungi to sort of improve sustainability in agricultural systems. Yeah what do you mean that insects interacting with the plant will change how it uh, interacts below ground? Yeah it's kind of an example of these crazily complex multi-trophic interactions that are actually really typical in everything we see around us today but we don't really bear them that much thought so a plant growing in I don't know if you can imagine in your garden there's a plant growing in a flower bed or something that plant is simultaneously interacting with loads of different organisms at the same time so it might well it probably is hosting mycorrhizal fungi in the roots But it's also probably under attack at the same time from insect herbivores. So it could be aphids or it could be caterpillars. Um, It's probably also having to fend off diseases and pathogens. 
and all of these different competitors they basically they're competing with the friendly fungus in the roots for plant resources so if we look if we, if we think about aphids for example and i've done a bit of work looking at the interactions between aphids plants and then mycorrhizas um aphids they they insert their their mouth parts their stylet it pierces uh the plant vessels and it directly withdraws carbon so sugars fats everything it directly withdraws that from the plant and that means there's less carbon in the plant available for the fungus to get hold of and that changes how the fungus functions because it doesn't have as much carbon so it can't forage as far or as well and so it changes the amount of um, nutrients that it can supply to the plant and there's all sorts of intricate interactions thereof. Kind of the really interesting ones, I think, are the ones where actually just a change in the environment has a massive impact on what's happening below ground. And that can have huge implications. So if you kind of imagine rising carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, for a lot of plants, that means they do more photosynthesis. And more photosynthesis means there's more carbon available for the fungus in the roots to get hold of. But for some reason, it doesn't work out that way. And we're not sure why. It's one of the puzzles, one of the things we're trying to figure out is why, why doesn't that benefit end up being passed on to the fungal partner? Is there some other limitation in the system that's stopping the plant and the fungus taking optimal advantage of that extra resource? Well, maybe the resources are used to grow the above ground parts of the plant more and faster. Yeah, it could be. It could be something like that. But then that's limited by nutrient availability, right? And the plant needs nutrients from the soil. And if it's not growing below ground parts or passing on to the fungus, it's going to be limited in terms of that. So it's this really interesting balance between. Quick question about, uh, so the hyphae, they will interact with the plant's roots. I mean, they're, I would guess they're promiscuous. They interact with other plant roots at the same time. You get like this massive network of hyphae that, yeah. that maybe tie together a whole bunch of plants. Yeah, absolutely. So we call these kind of the interconnected hyphae that kind of fuse and then they connect other plants all together. We call that a fungal network. And if it's a mycorrhizal fungal, fungus, then it's a, it's a common mycorrhizal network. And yeah, you're quite right. They're, they're, they're pretty cosmopolitan. So a lot of these fungi aren't fussy about who they hook up with. And a lot of plants aren't particularly fussy either. And so you can have this situation where you've got lots of different plants within a community and they're all connected by the same fungus. Again, the functionality of that, how it works what it does that's all under research that's all um it's it's all kind of equivocal at the moment we're not 100 sure what the significance of that is but you can see there's certainly potential for it to kind of help plants move resources from a rich area to a poorer area or to communicate signals and sort of transmit messages if one plant's being attacked by sort of herbivores it might tell neighboring plants that that's happening and then they can respond in an appropriate way and produce chemicals to ward off stuff so the possibilities are there, but the evidence at the moment, it's still quite sketchy. So we're not 100% sure what, how, how important these networks below ground are on a sort of community-wide basis. But the hyphae will associate with different kinds of plants or only one kind of plant at the same time? That's a really good question. I'm not sure we really know. There's certainly a lot, the, the potentials there. We know that the same fungus can colonize lots of different types of plant roots. I'm not 100% sure how strong the evidence is that that happens within the same network, but there are projects out there that are seeking to understand these networks better. 
um, and are trying to identify and map the sort of underground networks that are present. Um, so there's oh, a, wow. a project, yeah, there's a there's a project called SPUN, which is the Society for the Protection of the Underground, which is led by uh, Toby Kears, who's a professor at university at the Freie University in Amsterdam. And their 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 project, their their aim is to kind of map all of these underground networks to try and get a better picture of that, kind of help us understand. How well are different plants connected? Are they connected by the same fungus? Are they different fungi? Are there discrete areas of network? And all of, all of these questions. So hopefully, it's well. It is. It's an exciting time at the moment for sort of this area of research. And, and kind of hopefully in the next few years we'll kind of get well answers for you for questions like this. Yeah. Well, it seems like then plant roots would act as um, nodes in a hyphae network. I guess they would allow concentration maybe of hyphae in a particular area and, you know, it'd be a source of nutrients for them in between the distances between other plant root bundles. And I don't yeah, know. I, they, mean, they, I yeah. guess they would constitute, again, nodes in the network of a, of a fungi. Yeah, I mean, there's potential for that to happen. We don't, we don't there's not necessarily evidence there that that is what's happening. Um, I think one of the important things to remember is that the distances covered by these particular types of hyphae aren't vast in, on an individual basis so we're just talking a few centimeters each but thanks to their ability to fuse and to connect to multiple plants you can imagine the network actually being interconnected and, and spreading over a long area a, a wide area sorry in total and there's certainly potential for there to be hot spots and for the roots to kind of host a diverse array of fungi that then kind of spread and move elsewhere. Um, yeah, it, it's kind of, there's a lot of unknowns about this. And, and, and one of the main difficulties is kind of, is trying to understand and see the unseen because all of this is pretty much invisible to the naked eye and it's below ground. So there's real technical challenges that need to be overcome before we can kind of really get a grip on that. Well, has anyone found a compound that won't kill a hyphae network, but that will travel through the network? Yeah, the research that we do in my lab, we use um, radiation, we use radioactive isotopes to trace the movement of different molecules. So particularly, I mean, we're interested in the nutrients and the carbon. So we can, we, we use a radio labeled phosphorus, for example, which we can introduce into some parts of an experiment and then track how it's moving into the plant root and then we can measure how much it ends up in the plant. Obviously the trouble with that is you can't do it in a natural network outside because people don't like it when you introduce radiation into the environment for some reason. But yeah, you can do that. There's other research uses technology called quantum dots. Um, that is a fluorescent particle that tags specific nutrients. But again, you're kind of limited in the systems you can use them because you, you can't see them in the soil. You have to grow it on a plate or something and, and look at it sort of under those very artificial conditions. So there's also different ways of doing it, but none of them really allow you to visualize in real time in a natural environment, which I guess it's kind of the holy grail for understanding these networks. Hmm. Okay. Um, I don't know. Is there any particular experimentation you've seen that has shed light on on the fungi networks for you that's given you some knowledge you didn't have before on them um yeah there was some really cool research that um, came out from the university of aberdeen and it was um a group led by david johnson who's now at university of manchester in the uk and he did a really elegant experiment where they had a plant in a pot and it was mycorrhizal so it had a fungal network around his roots 
and they planted other plants next to it, which then grew and connected into this mycorrhizal network. And what they did was they introduced um, an aphid to one of the plants, and then they measured the response of the plants that were next to the aphid infested plant and they measured sort of how did those neighboring plants that were connected by the mycorrhizal network respond to that plant being um having the herbivore applied to it and then they did the same thing again but they cut the hyphal network so they, they physically severed the connections between the plant with the aphid and the rest of the network and they found that when the mycorrhizal network was intact that the neighboring plants they started to produce these volatile chemicals that actually were repellent to aphids when that neighboring plant had the aphid applied to it. So they were kind of preemptively warding off an aphid attack, essentially, thanks to um, some somehow picking up a signal from the neighboring plant. And we know, thanks to the experimental design, we know it wasn't anything to do with um, sort of above ground volatiles or detection of, of warning signals or anything it was it was purely down to the mycorrhizal network being intact that that happened and then it went even further than that a follow-up experiment it was really cool they tested some of these volatiles and not only did the volatile chemicals that the plants were emitting not only did they kind of repel the aphids but they actually attracted the parasitoid wasps that attack the aphids so it had like this double whammy of repelling the pest, but also bringing in the pest's enemies um, to get rid of them. Did did the adjacent plants do that only for themselves or did they do it for the subject plant as well? No, only for themselves. The subject plant, I mean, it was was already had the aphids on it. That that plant was, I mean, it had its own sort of defense chemistry going on in that situation, but that plant... No, but if if you didn't disconnect the hyphae network, I mean, you wouldn't Mm. have seen this, but if a plant has aphids on it, uh, do they Mm. tend to fight back more effectively against the aphids as time goes on maybe they're somehow getting resources through the hyphae themselves and it's not just a messaging system or yeah absolutely i mean better at fighting back it. yeah no we absolutely don't know the mechanism by what by which that's happening and there's lots of different ideas about how that, that that phenomenon kind of could have come about and it could be that the plant is secreting a signal and then that signal is traveling on a film of water that happens to be able to be conducted along the surface of the hyphae. Or it could be a direct signal or, yeah, it could just be a result of the hyphae supplying more nutrients or something. And that that's doing the um, that, that's triggering that response. Uh, Has anyone studied the structure of hyphae? Um, do they conduct material throughout them and how do they conduct mm-hmm. it? Like what's their circulation like? And, yeah, you know, so do they use exudates and all that stuff? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so if you can imagine mycorrhizal, we just talk, yeah, we'll just talk about mycorrhizal hyphae because that's kind of all we really right. <laughs> most about. So mycorrhizal hyphae, you can think of them as like continuous tubes and they kind of stream stuff through the tubes via the same processes that individual cells do. And we call that cytoplasmic streaming. The direction of that can change depending on resource availability and demand from either end. So whether the fungus needs it more, it might go in one direction. Or if the plant is drawing it more, it might go in the other direction. And yeah, I can't remember what the rest of the question was. I'm sorry. <laughs> you said they're like, it's okay. They're like tubes. Um, again, like, so what is the transport mechanism and what do they transport? What's been observed and how? What is the cytoplasmic streaming? 
Oh gosh. <laughs> is it is it like Netflix streaming but different? Yeah, so Sidesplatter Streaming is basically the movement of stuff within a cell and it's controlled by like these sort of really tiny, tiny particles within the cell cytoplasm kind of forms. I always think of it as like a tide inside, um, but there's all these like microtubules that direct the flow and kind of move stuff along. Um, and I can't really give you a better explanation than that because I'm not much of a cell biologist. <laughs> Well, that's okay. So what, what are some of the particular research questions that you're trying to answer right now? So we're really interested in, well, firstly, the applications of mycorrhizal fungi. So can we sort of exploit these fungal partners to try and improve sustainability in agriculture? And is that going to be a useful tactic in the future? So looking at whether we can replace the use of, sort of many agrochemicals, particularly fertilizers, pesticides, by using mycorrhizal fungi instead, as they're able to access different pools of nutrients in the soil. Yeah, and kind of looking at that both in like modern day context, but also in the future. So investigating how that might work at high CO2, warmer temperatures, changing weather patterns, um, and also across different crop varieties. So what's the effect of like cultivar on that? Does that have an impact on how well it functions? And what's the potential to breed for mycorrhizal benefit in, in, in crops? And then the second line of research that we're interested in is looking at kind of how important is fungal identity? So the types of fungi um, that form these mycorrhizal symbiosis, like how do they function? How are they different in terms of how they function? What's their role in natural ecosystems? And then the third thing that we're really interested in is kind of the evolutionary story of how did these fungal symbioses come about and what role did they play in helping plants get onto the land sort of 500 million years ago. So we're really spanning, yeah, like the whole of the Paleozoic in terms of the, the scope of our research. <laughs> okay, well, very good. Um, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work and to get in touch? Where can they go? So okay. yeah, if you want to find out more about the research that we're doing or if you're interested in mycorrhizal fungi then I've got a page on the University of Sheffield website um, but I'm also quite active on Twitter so you could follow me on katiefield4 um, or if you search my name you'll find me I've got a big mushroom in the background of my picture yeah. so yeah so, so that's those are kind of the best ways to get in touch I guess. Okay no, that's great well thanks for coming Kitty I know they were difficult questions I know a lot of people don't know much about it but you know I'm glad you were able to speculate and answer as best you could so it was a good call thank you, thank you. no it was fun thank you I hope it's okay <laughs> if you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes you've been listening to the finding genius podcast with Richard Jacobs if you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.